Welcome to Sacramento Central Seventh-day Adventist Church. Wherever you are and however you are joining us, we're so glad you're here for Central Study Hour. We hope you had a wonderful week walking and talking with Jesus. It's wonderful that we can do that, right? Jesus is someone that we can talk to as a friend. He's also our maker. He's also our king. And most importantly, he's our savior. Our first song this morning is hymn 15, My Maker and My King. Um, this comes as a request from Sylvester Edonwanyi in Ibadan, Nigeria. Let's sing the first, third, and fourth verse of My Maker and My King. inspire my soul with strength divine. Our next song this morning is hymn 109, speaking about uh, his marvelous grace. This comes as a request from Sylvian, uh, Davian, excuse me, and Stuart Sly in Grantham, United Kingdom. Let's sing the first and third verse of Marvelous Grace.
marvelous grace that is greater than all our sins. It can blot out anything that you think is wrong with you. Just come to Jesus and he can fix it because his grace is sufficient. What a wonderful song. Thank you, uh, Davion and uh, Stuart, for requesting that. If you have a special request, please visit us at our website at sexcentral.org. Click on the Contact Us link. Uh, pick your song, any song that's in the hymnal. Tell us where you're from, and we'll happy, be happy to sing it with you uh, in the coming Sabbaths. Our next song in our topical theme of forgiveness is hymn 298. So let's sing the first, second, and fourth verse of hymn 298, I Lay My Sins on Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to lay our sins on you. We thank you for the wonderful sacrifice that you made to, to, to give us uh, this salvation, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we study this morning, Lord, be with us and be with Pastor Chris. In your holy name we pray, amen. Our lesson study this morning will be brought to us by Pastor Chris Buttery our senior pastor at Sac Central Church. Beautiful, thank you so much. And you all sing just as nice as you do each week. What a blessing. Happy Sabbath to you. Good to see you and uh, good to see you this morning. Trust everyone is well and we wanna welcome those who are joining us, uh, whether you're tuning in via live stream or whether it be uh, satellite TV or cable or however you're tuning in, we're glad that you're doing so. We want to make sure that you call in for the free offer, and it's offer number 21515, 
And all you need to do is call the number on your screen, 916-457-6511, or email us at csh at saccentral.org. Tell us whether you want the CD or the DVD version, and we'll be happy to send that to you. Also, uh, write in, tell us how you're enjoying the programs. We enjoy hearing from you. And uh, it's nice to know that folk all over this globe are tuning in and watching these programs and being blessed by them and helping them in their walk with the Lord. And uh, just a, a wonderful thing to be sharing God's Word together. Um, we're in the book of Luke, and uh, we just launched in last week, didn't we? And we're on lesson number two, Baptism and Temptations. Baptism and the Temptations. And um, this, of course, is referring to the work of John the Baptist and Jesus' entry start to his Messiahship, his ministry. And uh, the memory text is Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And the Bible says, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In ancient times, the preparations were also made in advance uh, of the announced coming king. Uh, messengers were often dispatched into different areas around the region that the king would be visiting, uh, letting folk know, the subjects know, to prepare for the event uh, that the king was coming. And this preparation primarily involved, uh, in the most part, ensuring that the roads were good to travel on, uh, good for the king to, to travel on so that his experience might be more enjoyable. And this was primarily done because the roads back then weren't kept up. They weren't kept in any good shape at all. Um, be very rare that you would see workmen along the side of the road wearing orange vests and, uh, and orange cones, and you wouldn't ever see those signs that say, uh, your tax dollars at work. You wouldn't see that. Um, this, uh, the roads were kept uh, just the way they were. And when you get a lot of travel, horses and feet and uh, oxen and uh, cattle, it just would tear up the ground. And so the major preparation was to prepare the way, the road, for the coming of the monarch. The announcement of the arrival of the Messiah, the king of the Jews, had been committed to what nation? Israel. Been committed to Israel. And uh, because they were unprepared, and they'd forfeited their privilege of announcing his coming, but God chose one to whom he would herald his arrival. And uh, so we're going to go over to Sunday's lesson. We're going to talk about prepare the way of the Lord. This is Sunday's lesson. Now, before reintroducing, because we talked about him last week, before reintroducing the one God choose, chose to announce the arrival of the Messiah, Luke provides a list of Roman authorities to establish the year the messenger of the Messiah, the forerunner of the Messiah, would do his work, and also the year the Messiah would appear upon the scene. He would be baptized. And if you have your Bible there, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 3, and uh, you might as well just keep your finger in Luke because we're going to be in chapter 3 and chapter 4 here uh, this morning. And uh, we're going to read right along. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Notice it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother being Philip, Tetrarch of Euteria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. 
And so several dignitaries are listed to, to in, in one sense, to give us the year, to pinpoint the year that the work of John the Baptist was done or began, and that Jesus came on the scene to be baptized. Here you have Tiberius Caesar, and except for the mention of Augustus Caesar in uh, Matthew, or rather Luke chapter 2 verse 1, the mention of Caesar throughout the Gospels always refers to Tiberius. Tiberius Caesar was the ruling, uh, was the Caesar who ruled during the time of Jesus' ministry, you see. And uh, Tiberius won out several campaigns before his appointment as the military governor of the provinces. He was known as the first, quote, the first soldier of the empire. And he was known for strict discipline, but he was pretty relaxed on taxation. And the Bible says that uh, it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius that John was baptizing and preaching the gospel of repentance. And uh, essentially, that would lead us to the year A.D. 27, the fall of A.D. 26 to the fall of A.D. 27 in that region. And then the next person that he mentions is Pontius Pilate. We kind of know him. Uh, he's, uh, he was the fifth governor or the, pro, pro, uh, the, the procurator uh, who was an agent of the emperor rather, by, rather than by a proconsul uh, responsible to the senate. And they were given a subdivision of a province. And in this case, Pontius Pilate was uh, ruled over Judea, which was a subdivision of the province of Syria. And uh, this man, Pontius Pilate, was appointed by Rome. He succeeded Valerius Gratus in AD 26. And uh, he was essentially unbending and he was mean. he brought to surface the spirit of revolt uh, among the Jews, and he did that in three particular areas. He uh, first brought in uh, the Roman legion's banners into Jerusalem, and uh, there was a a big outcry, and uh, so Pontius Pilate had them taken down and removed out of Jerusalem. Uh, The second thing he did is he needed to build an aqueduct And uh, so what he did was he used money from the temple treasuries. And uh, that really uh, made the uh, religious leaders and the people of some of the people in uh, Jerusalem upset. And there was another uprising. And uh, in this time, Pontius Pilate didn't concede. He uh, stomped it out and uh, a lot of blood was shed. And then the third thing he did, he erected certain shields in Jerusalem that bore the name of Tiberius uh, on them. And, uh, and so the Jews again were upset, and this time Pontius Pilate removed those uh, shields. Um, Pontius Pilate was eventually recalled by Tiberius for misconduct in the year AD 36. And so Pontius Pilate uh, worked there during the time of John and of Jesus. Now, the next person is Herod. This is Herod Antipas. He was the son of the, of, uh, the father Herod the Great. And he was confirmed by Augustus, and he ruled from 4 BC, thereabouts, to about AD 39. This was Herod, who married the wife of his half-brother, Philip, Herodias, and was rebuked by John the Baptist. Uh, This was the Herod whom Jesus was sent to by Pilate during the night of his trial. And uh, as Tetrarch of Galilee, he was governor of the fourth part of a province or a subdivision of the province. So that was... Herod, uh, Herod Antipas. And then you've got Philip, who was Tetrarch. Um, He was the third son of Herod the Great 
that would rise to rulership. And uh, th- by the way, this is not the half-brother of, uh, of Herod, whose wife Herod had made arrangements with. Uh, it is said uh, of this Philip that his leadership was a blessing. He ruled for about 27 years, from 4 BC, uh, BC to about 33 AD. And then lastly, two individuals are mentioned as high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, Annas was appointed as high priest by Quirinius. He was governor of AD, and uh, in, uh, he was appointed in 6 or 7 AD, but he only lasted as high priest for about seven or eight years, um, uh, which was a problem. He was taken off the uh, seat of high priest by Valerius Gratus, and that's the fellow who preceded Pontius Pilate. Um, though he no longer served as a high priest technically during the ministry of Jesus, he was still considered by the majority of Jews to be a, the legitimate, a legitimate high priest. Uh, then there was Caiaphas. He was the son-in-law to Annas, and he was appointed high priest by the governor who disposed his father-in-law several years later. And he was officially the high priest throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. And uh, this man was mean and he was cruel, and he was a Sadducee. Now, it's interesting, bypassing all of these officials, and by the way, someone's got Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, they're going to read for us this morning. Matthew 3, verse 4, okay. Thank you very much, Nathan. That's good to hear. Matthew 3, verse 4. Uh, so, God bypassed all these high officials and uh, appointed a man from humble origins to declare the coming of the Messiah. And who was the forerunner of, of Jesus? His name was John the Baptist. That's right, John. Uh, the list of dignitaries that are given us here in Luke chapter 3 also provide the context for the arrival of the prophet, um, speaking clearly to the longing of the people of God to be liberated from their oppressors. So here was the situation. Uh, J- Jerusalem, the Jews were ruled by Rome. And it was a continual thorn in their flesh. They didn't like it. And so they were looking for a liberator, someone to redeem them, the Messiah. And then you had John the Baptist who came along, and he came just at the right time. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, we have a kind of a description of John. So, Nathan, thank you very much. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Hmm. It's an interesting description of John, isn't it? We'll talk about his ministry and his work here in just a little bit. Uh, But first of all, he wore what type of hair? Now, this was a garment, by the way. It wasn't a wig, um, but it was a garment. It was made of what? Camel hair, camel's hair, that's right. It was a roughly woven garment of hair. And then he wore a leather girdle or a leather belt that was probably made from sheep or goat skin. And it was worn to, uh, to bind the long flowing garment. Uh, now, the clothes that John the Baptist was wearing, who, did, do you, who do you think the people were reminded of when they saw John and they heard of this man preaching and they went out to see him there in the wilderness of Judea and they saw him wearing this, uh, these uh, simple clothing? Who do you think he reminded them of? Elijah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says that that's what Elijah wore. It's what Elijah wore. And uh, what this indicated to the people of God is that the prophetic ministry for, for so long that had not been in play for so long was now restored to Israel. It had been such a long time, but now as they saw John the Baptist out there wearing the garb of a prophet, 
it spoke to the fact that the prophetic ministry had been restored. And also, the simple garments of John the Baptist served as a rebuke to the excesses that were existed among God's people. In Matthew 11, verse 8, 8, verse 8 it's Jesus condemned uh, the, the, uh, the wearing of soft raiment and, uh, in king's palaces. Uh, folk were uh, used to these excesses and luxuries. Um, as one author put it, his garments reflected a disdain for the things of the world. John was uh, looking for another kingdom, a better kingdom, not to be necessarily accepted by the kingdom that he was ministering in and living in. And what did John the Baptist eat? Doesn't sound too appetizing, does it? Locusts and wild honey. Um, there's good reason to believe uh, that uh, the locusts referred to here, and although if it were real locusts, um, God's people were allowed to eat certain types of locusts, they would fall under the category of clean. I'm not sure why, but uh, there it is. Um, but there's good reason to believe that the locust that John the Baptist ate was uh, really the carob bean. Um, in, the, uh, in a couple of references, Ellen White refers to John the Baptist as being a vegetarian. And so, uh, historically, and, and looking at some things, we can assume that the locust referred to here was the carob bean. And uh, the diet was very simple. And why was it simple? simply to provide physical and mental strength and vigor, especially for one who had come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. John the Baptist came with the message, uh, a similar message to that of Elijah. Elijah's message was, how long halt you between two opinions? John the Baptist's message was very similar. Serve God, worship God, or don't, make up your mind, serve Him, preferably serve Him, give your heart to Him and, and follow Him. And, and it's, uh, it's interesting that the simple diet... Um, that, he, that he partook of as, as, as one who ministered in the spirit and power of Elijah, uh, we should also consider that the, the diet would be pretty good for us as well, not just specifically locusts and honey, but um, we, it would do us well. Those who are given the message, the last Elijah message to a perishing world uh, probably ought to follow the simple lifestyle of, uh, of John the Baptist so that we can keep our minds clear and we can be as healthy as possible to give our energies to the service of the Lord in the declaration of a very important and pointed message. What is the Elijah message? If you were to summarize that, what is it? The three angels' messages of Revelation chapter 14. That's, that is the message given to God's people today to share with a perishing world, a message to, to herald the second coming of Jesus, you see. Um, so, Elijah, John the Baptist their simple lifestyle, while rebuking the excessive lifestyle of the people around them, also served, to, um, also served to set an example to God's people then and today to live that modest and simple lifestyle to uh, declare to others that we, this world is not our home. We're passing through. We're looking for another kingdom, a better kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the new Jerusalem, you see. And also to... to, to uh, uh, Bear, in bearing the message, live a life that speaks to the message that we bear, doesn't contradict the message. And so, good counsel for us here uh, as we read about John. John's lifestyle matched his message. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, the Bible says his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He lived as one traveling to that kingdom, undistracted by the kingdoms of the world. Over here in Luke chapter 3, notice what it says here. And verse 3, talking of John, it says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
He went preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Baptism. Now, John wasn't the first one to introduce baptism. Um, some may wonder, is, is this the first time we read about baptism in the Bible? Well, it's actually the first time we read about it in the Bible, yes. But in history, not necessarily. Um, before this particular time, the Jews followed the practice of baptizing Gentile converts to Judaism. And, uh, and so that John required it of the Jews uh, was very interesting, and as the commentator puts it, very striking. Um, baptism was for the Gentiles, and here John was calling for the Jews to be baptized. Very interesting. On top of that, it was only a preparatory baptism for the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus would offer, and we read, you read about that in verse 16. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So essentially, John's, in John's message and call to baptism, if folk refused these baptisms, then they were no better than the heathen, no matter who they claimed to be their father. John talks about, uh, rather Luke talks about that in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. He said, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't just think that because you come from Abraham, you're a Jew, that that entitles you to the kingdom of heaven. Bear fruits worthy of repentance, you see. It didn't matter who they claimed to be their father, if they didn't repent and were baptized, then they were no better than the heathen who weren't serving the Lord. Now, it's interesting that John chose the Jordan River near the Dead Sea between Mount Nebo and Jericho to do his baptizing. It's very interesting. Does anyone know what happened in the same vicinity back in the Old Testament? Jordan River between Mount Nebo and Jericho. What took place? Any ideas? The crossing of the, the Jordan. God's people walked across the Jordan. Priests were to stand in the water, and then the waters parted, and God's people walked across on dry ground. After years of wandering in the wilderness, Israel could now cross over and experience a new start, a new lease on life. And John's baptism in that particular area, John wanted the people to recall God's wonderful leading in his past and the promise of a brand new start if they would embrace the kingdom of heaven or the promised land of the Messiah by repenting of their sinful ways. It's very interesting. Now, let's read on here. We're going to look at verse 8 and read right through to verse 14. Uh, Look at verse 7. He said to the multitude that came to, the, to be baptized, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In Matthew's account, he was a direct statement to the religious leaders, and, um, and we can assume that that was the case. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid or axes laid it to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, He that has two tunics, let him give to him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your 
wages. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was John Christ or not, John answers saying all to all, indeed, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. And so here was the message that John was uh, declaring to the people who came down to see this rugged-looking man baptizing in the River Jordan, down there by the, in the area, in the region where Israel of old crossed over from their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness into the Promised Land. They came to see him. And he had a very stern and very clear warning message for them. It was a message of repentance. It was a message of confession and uh, thus forgiveness, offered, proffered forgiveness from God. And all of these things were to precede baptism. These were the first steps in preparing the way of the Lord. How? By filling every valley, by leveling every mountain, by straightening crooked places and making smooth the rough ways of the character. That was how God's people were to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Open your hearts to the grace of God, repent, confess, be baptized, and allow the grace of God to change and transform your character. This is make every, every valley, fill every valley, level every mountain, straighten every crooked place, smooth the rough ways of the character was his message. Don't come saying you've repented. Bear fruit's evidence of repentance. Is there evidence of repentance? What's the evidence of repentance? A reformed life, isn't that right? True repentance says, Lord, I'm sorry, I don't want to do it again, and turns from the thing that we were doing. That's true repentance. And that, that's a gift of God, by the way. That true repentance is a gift of God. You can't work it up. You can't muster it up. It's a gift from God. And uh, if we open our hearts to receive the gift of repentance, we'll truly be sorry. Turn from that thing and, um, and know that our sins will be forgiven. Know that the Holy Spirit is at work in our life to smooth out the rough places, fill in the valleys, to level the mountains, you see. Well, that's preparing the way of the Lord. There's more that could be said. Let's run over to Monday's lesson here. Monday's lesson, you are my beloved son. John's message was to prepare people's lives and hearts for the coming of the Messiah. His message, by the way, and I, we mentioned it earlier, but his message is akin to that of God's last day people, preparing the way for the second coming of the Messiah, the second coming of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, not one who would come to lay down his life on a cruel cross, shed his blood, but one who would conquer and be coming as a conquering king to rule, set up and establish his kingdom. All right, so we're on Monday's lesson, You Are My Beloved Son. We're going to look at Luke chapter 3. We'll again read verse 15 through 17 here. It says, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John sets the record straight. And he answered and said to them, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Hmm. Powerful message. Interesting. Water and fire mentioned in these verses. Water and fire, two purifying agents, aren't they? Both water and fire purifying agents and appropriately mentioned in conjunction with conversion. The conversion of the person. Interestingly, water and fire are both mentioned in reference to the destruction of the earth. The first time this earth was purified and destroyed by a flood of water. 
The second time, the earth's going to be purified by what? Fire. That's exactly right. Um, the idea here being that if we persistently cling to sin, we'll end up being consumed with sin. It's far better to allow the Holy Spirit to purge our lives of sin, for we'll either be purged of our sin or we'll be purged with our sin. When it says here that He would come and He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, fire is the description of the Holy Spirit. It's a descriptive word. And uh, being purged, being cleansed, being baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit, means that there's a work to be done in our lives. God wants to purge the sin, the selfishness, the ego from our lives. And to be, to, to like John the Baptist, be like John the Baptist, who said, one mightier than I is coming. In John chapter 3, verse 30, he said, I am, I must decrease, but he must increase. That, that ought to be the language of every follower of Jesus, of their lips, of their lives. Uh, that Jesus ought to increase in our lives and he ought to be seen in our lives. Not, not myself, but Jesus. That's the message. The day is coming, friend. God is going to destroy sin. And he's, he sent his son Jesus in the world to, to conquer sin, to remove sin from the believer's life. And uh, God wants, doesn't want us to be associated with sin or will be associated with the fires in the last day. It is better to be purged by the, the fire of the Holy Spirit now, even if it might mean some trials and some challenges, even being, uh, and, and we are, we're exposed to temptation uh, daily, but uh, even if it means that we're exposed to those things and God is able to purify our characters, it is better that and suffer just momentarily than to suffer and be consumed in the fires of the last day. Far better to deal with the fire of the Holy Spirit than the fires of the last day. Um, someone has Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Okay, right over here. Pam, thank you. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. So... John the Baptist was baptizing. John the Baptist was baptizing. And uh, as John the Baptist was baptizing, had baptized the folk, there was an individual. According to the gospel account of John, John chapter 1, there was an individual who was walking the banks and had come to see John that day. And John looked at this individual and declared, the Lamb of God. Behold, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to be baptized of John. Let's read about that. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Thanks, Pam. When all of the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Thank you very much. And we can read the, uh, another account in uh, Matthew and also in Mark. What's the significance of Jesus' baptism? What's the significance of Jesus' baptism? Did Jesus need to come and be baptized for the remission of sins? The Bible says he was without sin. So he didn't need to be baptized to have his sins washed away. He was without sin. What was Jesus baptized for? To set us basically an example. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He came to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to give us an example of what we all need to do. He also was baptized to teach us a couple of things. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at this just briefly. Baptism is a fabulous subject, and today here at Central, 10 precious individuals will be getting baptized. It's just a wonderful and a high day. Um, baptism is, Romans chapter 6, baptism is a very special rite, one that was instituted by God. 
And uh, Jesus came to teach us how important baptism was. As a matter of fact, John was baptizing near Anon, and the Bible says in uh, John chapter 3, verse 23, that there was a lot of water there. Baptism, the word baptism means simply to dip under or to be immersed, to be baptized. You would take wool if you wanted it dyed. You wouldn't sprinkle it, but you would immerse it under the dye. You were to be baptized, to be baptized. Jesus was baptized. He came up out of the water, the Bible says, and, uh, and some neat things happened. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. I want you to notice the, a key theme in these six verses. Tell me what they are. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death... Certainly we also shall be raised uh, in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. What's, uh, there's, there's a couple of repeating thoughts in here, but what are, what, what's the main one I'm looking for? Death, that's right. We were, when we are baptized, we're baptized into Jesus' death. As Jesus died and was buried in a tomb, so those who come to Jesus in faith and, uh, and, have ex- and, and want to express their... And baptism is simply that. Baptism doesn't work a miracle in the person's life. It is an outward expression of an inward change, inward conversion. It's a public declaration of my love and commitment to Jesus Christ that I want to follow Him all the days of my life. Just like husband and wife standing at the altar, declaring their love for, in front of everyone for each other, that they're going to be committed to each other for the days of their lives. And a baptism is the same way. So uh, here, we're baptized. When a person comes to Christ and wants to declare their love for the Lord and they want to follow Jesus, they're baptized into his death. And this is, a, this is one of the reasons why, and the lack of understanding of this concept is the reason why some Christians and a lot of Christians struggle with victory in their lives because they've not experienced death. They've not experienced being dead to self. You know, there are, there are cases of people who've been buried alive. You've read about those cases. Some didn't make it. Others made it. I read about a story in, uh, situated in Brazil. And uh, they, uh, the mother had apparently died. And the daughter came to check on her mother. And uh, when they, she went to go give her a last kiss, she, she recognized she was breathing. She'd been in, a, in that cold refrigerator in a plastic bag for two hours. She'd been buried alive. And uh, she fortunately survived to, to tell about it, and her daughter told about it as well. There are many people who've been buried alive. They've, they've not died to self and to sin and to the world. Self still exists. Now, granted, the, the Bible's not saying that, that your old man can be fully, that your old man's going to be dead as if it doesn't exist. He says in verse 14 that we are to reckon ourselves to be dead. It's going to su- strive for supremacy quite often in the Christian walk. But we can reckon it to be what? dead. Does a dead man cuss back at you? If you kicked him, not that you would, but if you kicked a dead man, would he cuss back at you? Would he kick you back? If you swore at a dead man, not that you would, would he swear back? No. Dead. Dead. And God's people are to be dead. Dead to self. But alive to Jesus, experiencing not only the death of Christ, but also the resurrection of Jesus. 
to walk in newness of life. Baptism teaches us about the experience. This is why the method of baptism is so important. Baptism's a choice. You've got to repent. You've got to know the Word of God. You've got to know the teachings of Jesus. An infant can't do that. A baby can't do that. But an, uh, at the age of accountability, a child, a young child, uh, a, a teenager, youth, an adult can do that. And we make that choice. Where was I before I got distracted? Baptism. The, the method is so important because it teaches about the experience that God's people are to have prior to baptism. Experiencing death to self, self being buried, self and sin being buried, in the, and buried and forgotten by God and being raised to newness of life, coming out of the water, taking a breath of fresh air, being filled with the Holy Spirit. The symbolism is so significant and that's why the method is so important as well. So in the baptism of Jesus, several things happened. Jesus was declared to be the one to take away people's sin, John chapter 129. The heavens were opened, the Bible says, signifying heaven's favor on Jesus. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus for service, commissioned him for service. And, and uh, then, uh, number four, God declared Jesus to be who? the Son of God. And that was very important, very imperative for what he was about to experience and the ministry he was about to engage in. He was declared the Son of God to affirm and strengthen him in his ministry. So anytime anyone would come along and say, if you are, would you be? Prove that you are. He would have those words resounding in his ears, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And anyone who is baptized can experience something similar. Not that you're going to hear a booming voice come from heaven per se, but you can know that you're as a son or a daughter of God because you've given your life to him. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. The heavens are open. Prayers are received. He'll pour out his Holy Spirit upon you for service and for ministry and, uh, and to smooth those rough places in our characters. These are things that are promised to us as Jesus experienced them, you and I experience them as well. Well, let's go over to Tuesday's lesson. Let's talk about now the ministry of Jesus, not by bread alone. After his baptism, Jesus, who was full of the Holy Spirit, was led to, into the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let's read that together. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Some have suggested that he went over near uh, Horeb, Mount Horeb, where Moses looked over into the, into the promised land um, 1,500 years earlier. Uh, it could be. But he went out into the wilderness, it says, led by the Spirit. Verse 2, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Christ went essentially into a solitary place to pray and to prepare for his intense yet brief ministry. Uh, here was the one, and here came coming to Jesus was the one who was cast out of heaven by the one he came to tempt to do hand-to-hand -hand battle with the one who'd cast him out in the first place. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. The one who was cast out of heaven because he wanted the throne and the place of God, he was cast out. And, uh, and he, now he came to do hand-to-hand -hand battle with Jesus. In Desire of Ages, it says that uh, the devil didn't want to trust this important moment to any of his confederate angels. He moved in to conquer because he knew if he didn't, he would be conquered. And so he took it on himself. Now look, 
at verses 3 and 4. We look at the first temptation. By the way, Jesus was tempted all those 40 days. That's what the Bible says there in Luke, for 40 days. But at the end, when Jesus was hungry, the devil had some very special temptations prepared to get Jesus to bite and to sin, and thereby throw into a tailspin the plan of salvation. Let's look at the first one. In Luke chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, and the devil said to him, and by the way, does a devil come to you like he does as a devil? Hey, I'm the devil. Here's my business card. I'm about to tempt you and I'm about to deceive you. Does the devil do that? No, he doesn't. He comes, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, he comes even appearing as an angel of light. And you can be sure this is the way the devil came to Jesus. He came to Jesus and he said, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word if gave the devil away, as he normally comes as an angel of light and isn't easy to spot. Uh, This is a similar question that he posed to our first parents in the Garden of Eden, right? Has God truly said? That was the insinuation. Has God truly said, You shall not eat, or you won't die? The devil's all about casting doubt and aspersions on God's Word. If he can get us to doubt God's Word, he can get us to trip up and sin and and just become a prey to the enemy, you see. The devil's always seeking to get us to doubt God's Word. And, And he invited Jesus to command the stones be made to bread. If Jesus gave in here, then the plan of salvation would have been over. In responding to the suggestion of the devil, Jesus would have been giving evidence of a faltering faith. Also, in performing the miracle to sustain himself would have left for us an example that we could not follow. So Jesus said, okay, I I, I don't have an advantage, I'm not going to have an advantage over them to come after me. I'm not going to do this. If he did, it wouldn't have been a perfect example you've seen. And so he said, make these stones. The devil said, make these stones into bread. This was an appeal to the what? Appetite. Jesus was what? The Bible says, hungry. And you would be too after 40 days of not eating. Some of us can barely go 40 minutes without eating. <laughs> Jesus, 40 days, nearly, nearly six weeks without eating. He was hungry. And so he came to him and appealed to his appetite, just like he did with Eve. Most of the temptations that the devil presents to us or brings to us fall into this particular category because he knows that it increases his chances of success. You're hungry? Ah, all right. You like this? All right. Smells good, very good, I'll take care of it, you see. And this is what he does. Not only that, he also comes to us at our weakest moments. We're only as strong as our weakest link, you know that. And he attacks our weakest links, comes to us at our weakest moments. Moses, after 40 years of uh, wandering in the wilderness with, with the complaining Israelites, momentarily let his grasp slip from infinite power and was prevented from going into the promised land. Elijah, after he had slain all the prophets of Baal, at the word of Jezebel that she was going to have his life, he fled. He was tired. He was exhausted. The devil came to him at his weakest moment. You see, the devil can lead us to damage the body, the medium through which the mind and the spiritual nature are developed, then he knows he can lead us to ruin. And so he'll always get us at that, at that place. So watch what you eat. Watch those things. Be careful, you see. What did Jesus respond? He responded by saying, yeah, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Man is more than an animal. An animal lives to eat and satisfy its, its, its appetite. We're more than animals. Amen? Yeah. We're more than animals. There's more to life than meeting physical and material needs. 
We're primarily to pursue God's kingdom. Jesus said, my meat or my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jeremiah, uh, after finding and eating the words of God, he says they became to him joy and he gave to him a rejoicing heart. Job, it was said, I, I have esteemed the words of my mouth more of your mouth, more than necessary food. Paul spoke of tasting the good word of the Lord, and Peter referred to the sincere milk of the word by which Christians are to develop and to grow. See, the devil is always seeking to try to shake our faith in God, but nothing, not even the threats of the beast of Revelation, the two beasts of Revelation 13 in the last days, should cause us to come undone. We are to receive and accept every word, not just, you know, cherry pick the things that we like, but receive all the things of God's Word to make us to be sons and daughters of God. There are a couple of promises I want to share with you here. God will always take care of us if we put His will and way first. Someone has Psalms 37 verse 19. Who is that? Right here. Tim, thank you. All right, Psalms 37 verse 19. And then I'll just read a couple of quick verses for us. Matthew 6, 33, you can write them down. What does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be what? added unto you. Those things he was referring to were food, raiment, and shelter, the basic necessities of life. Isaiah 33, verse 16, he will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. I hope, I just pray and hope it's not rye bread. I'm just not a rye bread fan. But God provide, promises that he will provide for our needs. I'll leave it if it need be. Psalms 37, 19. Psalms 37, 19. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. Amen. God's promise to us is that He'll take care of us if we put Him first. We can count on His promises. According to Matthew's account, after these temptations, these severe temptations, angels came and ministered to, to Jesus. And you can be sure that angels will come and minister to you in your time of need as well. Amen? Amen. Amen. Wednesday's lesson takes us to the third temptation. In the book of Luke, Luke kind of turns the order around. We're led to believe that Matthew's order is, uh, is, is accurate, but uh, we're not entirely sure. But here we have three temptations brought by the devil. The first one, and then here we, we could say the third one. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 8. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 8. Someone has Isaiah 14. And if you could read verse... 13 and 14, not 12 to 14, just 13 and 14. Who has that one? Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. Okay, right here. Thank you very much. Okay, um, so here we are, Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. It says, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and, your glory, and the glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever... I wish. Why would Satan want Jesus to worship him? Why? What was the stake here? Worship belongs only to who? The Creator God. That's exactly right. It's the one thing that separates the Creator from his creatures. And from the beginning, this is what Lucifer has wanted to usurp the authority and take the prerogatives of God. Uh, we have uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. 13 and 14, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne from the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congressions on the farthest side into the north. I will ascend above the heights 
of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Hmm. So from the beginning, that's what the devil wanted. Christ was rightful ruler of the earth, and the devil came along and stole it away. And then, in this temptation, he claims what? Ownership of it. <laughs> He's a de facto ruler, in fact. Uh, all of this actually belongs to who? Christ, that's right. So Satan proceeded to offer it to the one who owned it all along. He said, temporal for the eternal. Uh, and I'm going to get what I've always wanted, and that is worship. But Jesus didn't sell out, did he? Jesus didn't sell out. We're going to jump down to Thursday's lesson as we come to the close, Christ the victor. This is the other temptation, Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. I'll read that for us. And then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil ended every temptation, he departed from him for good? No, until an opportune time. You can be sure the devil will come back. And he certainly will. The devil quotes scripture in this particular instance to cause Jesus to prove his loyalty and faith to the Son of God. However, in quoting scripture, he admits the words to keep you in all your ways. In an attempt to obscure the fact that the protecting care of God is available to us only when we remain faithful to choosing the ways of God. The devil was trying to get um, Jesus to be presumptive, you see. But like at all other times, Jesus quotes Scripture to gain victory over the tempter. And here is the secret to yours and my success in our Christian walk. Memorizing and knowing Scripture. Being able to bring it to, it to mind when we need it the most. Jesus said, it is written. It is written. He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Then Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And then again, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. He quoted scripture to gain victory. Someone has 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. We're going to make this our last verse right over here. Nanny, okay, very, very good. Right over here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Jesus didn't sell out, and you and I ought not sell out either. Amen? We ought not sell out either. Here's a couple of wonderful promises for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For in that he, Jesus himself, was suffered being tempted... He is able to aid those who are tempted, you see. Because we have a Savior like Jesus, we don't have to sell out cheap. We can hold on to Him with confidence today, amen? Sure. James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Man, submit to God. Resist the devil, what will he do? He'll flee. Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe, and are safe. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, Nanny, thank you. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to a man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Amen. Thank you very much. What a powerful promise. Every temptation that comes to us, there's another temptation. You know what it is? To do what's right. Every time you're tempted to do what's wrong, you're tempted to do what's right. Is temptation sin? No. Temptation is not a sin. We can gain victory over temptation by the grace of God. And the, sex, the secret of success in our Christian walk is submitting to God, resisting the devil, claiming the promises of God, 
That can be our experience as it was Jesus. Amen. Do you want that experience? I want that, I want that experience each and every day, and I know you do as well. Glad you could be a part of the study today. And those that are joining us, thank you for tuning in. Please uh, don't forget to call in for the free offer. Uh, the number and email address are on your screen. And also let us know how you're enjoying the program. Look forward to seeing you next time and God bless. Mm-hmm.